This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is, is Jash Dolani, who is a big fan of old classic books. I discovered him on Twitter making thrilling threads about various thinkers throughout history, and I wanted to have him on my show to learn more about how he thinks and why he posts the content that he posts. In this conversation, we end up talking a lot about Nietzsche, about Christianity, and about Hinduism, and I learned a lot from his perspective as a Hindu, or at least growing up in Hindu culture, and then talking a lot about Western culture, and mapping the different cultural perspectives on deep virtues. Great guy. Definitely check out his Substack and his Twitter. They'll be linked in the description. I'm proud to introduce Jash Dolani. It's all just kind of when we get interesting, but uh, I like the banter. How did I come across you? Um, I've, I've been like kind of looking around through this kind of dissident right wingish sphere. And it's just like this network of people, you know, like really yeah. interesting landscape. And I came across you because you you're you're speaking through or to people who are you know want to look underneath the hood of politics, underneath the hood of the psychology of sociology. Um, and what you've been producing are threads of authors and thinkers that you admire. Is that fair to say? And what got you going on that? Yeah, authors and thinkers, I admire authors and thinkers who are interesting. You know, before admiration, there is, oh, that was interesting. So every time you read someone, you can feel the risk that they are taking or not taking, the novelty that they are aiming at or not aiming at. So every time I read someone who's taking risk, who is uh, trying to approach an important question in an interesting way, my natural interest is piqued. And I want to then, you know, just use that. Like if I find an author who is uh, talking about something which matters globally, matters to people uh, at a political level, matters to them at a personal level. And then uh, I, if I can just uh, sort of uh, explain that to the crowd, you know, explain that to the followers, explain that to the subscribers, then I think that's just uh, the way to go. You know, I, I try to never, I used to do threats on books which were not necessarily super interesting to me, but they just had so much cultural clout that it made sense to talk about them. But I've stopped doing that because uh, the book, the idea, the guy, the thinker needs to matter to me for my linguistic flourishes to come out. You know, otherwise I'm just going to end up creating some lukewarm, tepid thread which is interesting to no one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but where, where did you begin on, uh, I guess there's a threshold from like just being a student to being kind of a speaker or professor in, in a certain limited sure. sphere. Like what's kind of like the basic topic, the basic interest, the basic thing that, that's been guiding you or that's been developing and, and what is interesting to you? 
Yeah, I've always been very, uh, you know, I've been loaded with opinions. I've always had something to say about things. Uh, I've enjoyed debating uh, in high school and college. I did a, I, my major was political science. And uh, it, it was just that playing with ideas was a lot of fun to me. Hmm. Um, and, you know, that takes you places. It takes you to certain books. It takes you to certain conversations. And uh, then you just kind of keep reflecting on the same uh, thing, but it, it, with ever greater depth. So my favorite thinker is Nietzsche. And I read him 10 years ago. I'm 25 now. I must have read him when I was 15. Uh, and at that point, I maybe went in uh, 10% of the way, 20% of the way, you know, and then you keep reading him and you keep getting deeper and deeper into him. You, the picture becomes clearer, com more complete. Um, and I think that I, life happens to everyone, right? Uh, I think you, you're asking me, where did the interest uh, develop from, you know, and how do you get to these thinkers? How do you get to these questions? And uh, I think essentially a lot of the people I talk about, they're not academic. They're not writing some thesis which would be read by five people total. You know, they are trying to tackle questions which are very flesh and blood and bones and real and tangible and concrete. Yeah. And uh, if you are curious about life, if your eyes are open, then I think one way or the other, you will end up thinking about politics, human psychology in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. And then some thinkers become your guides. They become your unofficial professors. And they become, the, you know, they give you the cognitive tools to think about things which were which you were already thinking about. Yeah. yeah. Why Nietzsche? I think he was radical and provocative and, uh, you know, purposefully provocative and fresh. Oh, and had this ability to attack a subject from 10 different angles. So there is this one passage, I forget which book, perhaps the, uh, the gay science or the, you know, um, the happy wisdom. The passage is about what does the peace of soul mean, you know, the, the, the peace of the soul, which is something that religion talks about. What is that thing? And Nietzsche has this passage where he describes that in 10 different ways. So he says that peace of soul could be the quietness after victory right or it could be defeatism it could be you know maybe you are seeking peace because uh, you know you will lose the war you know like who seeks peace someone who knows they will lose the war yeah. and he had this ability to talk about that one concept from 10 different angles and i never have found someone else with that intellectual uh, versatility um and then you know he he talked about the big stuff you know uh, God uh, is God dead? What would that mean? Um, what what is a who is a great man? How do you differentiate between a great man and uh, you know a mediocre one? What what is the belief system which leads to the democracy or the managerial bureaucracy of twenty twenty three? Like you know what is the substrate? Yes. What is the soil out of which the plant of modernity has grown you know and he could un ask these questions and better still he could answer them so hmm. 
What what's your heritage then? What, what what context are you coming to or through these thinkers from? Yeah, well, I my heritage. I'm from India. You know, um, I am Hindu. Uh, my religion would be Hindu. Mm-hmm. I have been, uh, you know, reading everything, uh, thinking about everything. Hinduism has a unique uh, worldview. Uh, it has a certain way of understanding the world, which is very different from the Christian worldview. Um, the Hindu worldview is more pantheistic and more, um, there's a lot sort of, uh, there's a, there's a lack of final answers to it, let's say, right? Uh, Hinduism is popular globally, and it's to some degree a stereotype, but to some degree it's true. Like, there are millions of gods in Hinduism. You know, there is no, there is the one god, but then he expresses himself in uh, a very mind-boggling, with very mind-boggling versatility. Yeah. So my heritage has been, you know, born a Hindu, born in India, um, but intellectually curious, reading everyone from a very young age and finding some thinkers who resonate more than others. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm just, um, I just I would like to explore the value set of Hinduism and then how it informs the thinkers or how it gives you a point of view. So you said that's very different than Christianity in so far as it doesn't have a final answer. When I think of Hinduism and I'm not deeply versed into it, but a couple of the best pieces of literature, I think in world history are the Mahabharata and the Ramayanda is that? Yeah, yeah. Mahabharata and Ramayanda. Mahabharata is just so amazing, and uh, you know, when when I read it, when I found it, you know, in my late twenties, and I had already read through, you know, Nietzsche and read through Jung, so I kind of under, I had some tools to interpret this text as expressing deep psychological truths. What you have in this book, and it's not necessarily well. I mean, I'm approaching this book as somebody from outside of Christianity would approach the Bible. Like, this is a literary document that informs a culture. It's not necessarily a sacred text, um, but inside of it is the wisdom that is formulating the culture. And so what you see in the Mahabharata is this... Well, one, there's a war between these forces, like the the noble forces are at war with the demonic forces. And if you look at it through one point of view, it's just the psychology of what it is to become a noble human is that you put your demons into place, right? And they're all brothers. So it's it's very explicitly like this is we're talking about one person because everybody's really interrelated. Um, But the, the flavor of that book, as opposed to the Judeo-Christian book, there's, well, I guess I I can't, you say one thing and I can completely contradict it in the next sentence, but there's a certain approach to warriorship, nobility, um, conquering, uh, servility and mastership, right? So there's, there's kind of, it's, it's encoded with classism. Classism is not, um, I mean, even there's a caste system um, in in your culture. It's not uh, moralized like we would moralize things or Christianity developing into Marxism, trying to make everybody equal. Like there's just natural hierarchy embedded in your culture. I'm bringing up a lot of things. So I'm just trying to understand how you would bring, how, how would Hinduism or your culture add to the conversation 
from the point of view of like a Westerner, like involved in like Western politics, left versus right and stuff. Like, what are you seeing? What are you bringing? And then what are the thinkers that you're finding that are calling to you and that you could add to and from? I think one angle which may be interesting to Western people would be India is, uh, you know, associated with Mahatma Gandhi. And Mahatma Gandhi is popular for leading a non-violent revolt. And he is popular for kicking out the British uh, colonizers in a non-violent fashion via civil disobedience and via fasting and via uh, dialogue instead of via violence. And uh, you referred to this text Mahabharata and Mahabharata has this other text inside it called Bhagavad Gita, which, you know, famously Oppenheimer quoted when the atom bombs went off. Uh, Oppenheimer quoted this one verse which says, I am become death, the destroyer of uh, worlds. And that is from Bhagavad Gita, which is a part of Mahabharata, right? And Bhagavad Gita is actually known for its, um, you know, fighting as duty message. Uh, You know, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi was about how you should not use violence and you should not use, uh, you know, uh, war and uh, weaponry as a means to getting what is right. Uh, But uh, Bhagavad Gita in some bits, according to some interpretations, would differ. In Bhagavad Gita, there's a warrior called Arjun. And Arjun is fighting his uh, blood cousins. He's fighting people who he is associated with by blood. And at one point, he throws his uh, weapons down and he turns to his chariot, who happens to be the god Krishna. Krishna is one of our three deities, three major gods. And he happens to be the uh, charioteer for Arjun. And uh, Arjun is like, I can't kill my own brothers. I can't kill my own, uh, you know, teacher. I can't kill my own uncles. You know, what sort of war is this? And Krishna tells him to do his duty. You know, Krishna tells him that you are in a war. You are a warrior. You were born to be a warrior. You were bred to be a warrior. And your duty demands that you do the heart-breaking, difficult thing. And it is what it is. And, you know, that may be interesting to uh, Western listeners who perhaps associate India very strongly with Mahatma Gandhi, which is fair and proper. But there is this uh, alternative vision of what war is. You know, perhaps war is sometimes your duty. Yeah. One more thing which may be interesting to uh, Western people would be how the existence is painted as a play in Hinduism. You know, it's not, it is a test of your soul and it is, you know, you do have free will and you can end up in something approximating heaven, you can end up in something approximating hell. But sometimes the picture painted is something like God is the ultimate creative force in the world and he wants to above all experiment, explore and play. So one of our three deities, Lord Krishna, his identity is almost that of a trickster. He is playful. He will play the flute. He will play pranks on people. He will be known for being mischievous and naughty and uh, kind of, you know, in a fun way, not in a destructive way, disturbing the peace. Uh, And that is a picture of God, which is uh, different than some picture that Western minds may be used to. Um, But, you know, it does make sense when you think of the world as essentially matter and atoms and the electromagnetic force and the physical 
you know raw material of the universe expressing itself like atoms just you know they they sometimes like to express themselves as a flower sometimes they like to express themselves as a bird it does yeah. seem playful you know if you if you think about it from that perspective yeah so that what might be interesting to western listeners what about the concept of evil in hinduism what what is yeah. the purpose of that or the cause or yeah, I think the problem of evil is something that all religions wrestle with. Uh, the apex villain of the other... So you know how the Greeks have their Iliad, and uh, India has Ramayana and Mahavarat, these two books that you mentioned. Yeah. And then the apex villain in uh, Ramayana is this guy with ten hats. So he has ten hats, uh, which seems to be a clear association between an overdeveloped rationality and evil, you know, and this guy is called Ravan. His name is Ravan. And he is actually the most uh, studied, the most uh, read, the most enlightened uh, priest. So he he meditated for 10,000 years yeah. and he is spiritually a very advanced being. He is not, he has been given an, an incountable number of boons and blessings by the gods themselves. So this apex villain character, he's not, uh, he is, a, he does have the demon in him. He is the demon. But at the same time, he is spiritually advanced and has been blessed by multiple gods, not one, and is, you know, the smartest man of his time. And he, his interpretation of the holy books is above the interpretation of other people. Mm-hmm. And he's deeply religious. He is deeply spiritual. And uh, one thing which immediately strikes you is his arrogance, which comes from his pride in his uh, in his rational mind, which leads to his downfall. So mm-hmm. there is that association, which I think cuts both ways. You know, it is good to warn against the excesses of the mind, but at the same time, civilization is a product of the mind. Yeah. You know, civilization happens when you solve problems using your mind. And uh, the mind is perhaps the ultimate uh, two-double-sided sword. Yeah. And we have a main story which warns against the how mind can slide into evil. Like too much mind, too much thinking, too much rationality can slide into evil. Yeah, yeah. I, I can think of uh, particularly... Um... I guess he was popular, but now he's kind of the butt of a lot of jokes. Uh, new atheist that uh, keeps on putting his foot in his mouth, but he was so arrogant and so uh, assured of his yeah. rationality. And, and now what he preaches is, is obedience to the rational professional, obedience to this priestly caste, right? Which, which was the opposite of what he was preaching um, yeah. when he was standing against the priestly caste of uh, the religious. Is there a big Absolutely. split between... The secular and the religious, uh, in, in the Hindu point of view, is the or does it bleed? Is it integrated differently? How is the integrate the, you know, like the the fall, yeah. like the the outside world, the secular world, and the holy world? Um, there's kind of like right. a, in Christian Judeo Christianity, we wrestle with that a lot. Like, what's sacred? How do how do we bring the marry the sacred with the uh, profane or the secular? Yeah, I think it's the the fault lines are not that clearly defined because of how loose and uh, adaptive Hinduism is. So it as a belief system, there are core tenets, there are core schools, uh, and there, there is a core philosophy. But at the same time, it is enormously 
uh, flexible. So we have an atheist uh, school of philosophy inside uh, Hinduism. So Hinduism is uh, flexible enough to accommodate even atheism within it. And there is no major fault line between the secular and the how would, religious. How society. would one be a atheist Hindu? Like, how do you how do you reinterpret the religious spiritual uh, realities as something yeah. that is lacking in spiritual religious connotation? Yeah, I think you could have a vision of the world which is perhaps more materialist than uh, spiritual. You know, you could. Um, you, I mean, just like you can reduce matter to spirit, you can reduce spirit to matter, hmm. right? Like, you can tell me that the body is driven by consciousness, or you can tell me that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the body. It's a, it's something which emerges from the body. Hmm. So I think the Hindu atheist uh, school, I mean, I'm not the world expert on it, uh, surprisingly enough <laughs> but i think that school would say something like what you consider gods what you consider spirit what you consider consciousness has its roots in matter has its roots in um the physical world and uh, yeah i think it would be it would be perhaps similar to people who try to find the biological roots of consciousness somewhere inside the mind yeah. Yeah. So, so what... to your original question, yeah, I think secular, we do have political parties which uh, galvanize their base around the slogan of secularism because we have one political party which is extremely, uh, you know, religious in its language, and that's the ruling party, the BJP. So, secularism is a phrase which pops up um, mm. in political discourse. But if you come down to the level of society, I think uh, Hinduism's flexibility allows people to be, you know, half Hindus or 10% Hindus or non-committal Hindus or Hindus with a different interpretation of Hinduism. Huh. So, huh. yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. To what degree, what about you? Like, to what degree does Hinduism, uh, like, central, peripheral? And then, and then also in your intellectual pursuits, like, how does it guide you? Or was that the launching pad for you into your... Yeah. yeah, in a way, it was a launching pad. Uh, I read this one Hindu monk called Swami Vivekananda, and you should uh, read him if you ever get a chance. Swami Vivekananda, and Vivekananda died when he was just thirty-nine, and he was an extremely eccentric and profound thinker and writer and person. 
and when, when he about, finally left. What years? His life? When is his life? When did he live? Yeah. So he died, I think, in the 1900 or the 1899. So he lived in the latter half of the 19th century. And he was uh, he was one of the first people to bring yoga to America. Okay. So he was among the first Hindu saints slash monks to travel to the West and bring Advait Vedanta and yoga and all these things to America. And he was uh, an, a supremely intelligent man. And I remember reading him when I was 13 and when I was 14. And he was this uh, gigantic roving intellect. And he would read everyone. He met Nikola Tesla. He met Nietzsche, probably. We are not sure if he met Nietzsche. Yeah. But there is a letter in which Vivekanand wrote, I met a German philosopher. And, uh, you know, some people think that was Nietzsche. So Vivekananda was very interesting. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote from his life. Um, one year before he died, he wrote a poem called The Fourth of July. And the Fourth of July is obviously the American Independence Day. And people thought he was referring to the American Independence Day. And the poem is called Freedom. So people thought it refers to the Americans overthrowing the British colonialism and their freedom and so on. And it was interpreted as a obviously political poem. But then a year later, Vivekanand dies on 4th of July. And then a new interpretation emerges. <clears throat> people now say that he was predicting his own death. And he was predicting his own spiritual freedom because in some uh, sects of Hinduism, you know, death can be a release uh, from the bondage of matter and life. And death can be a release of the spirit. It could be freedom of the soul. So he was this uh, esoteric, uh, you know, guy probably had some touch with the supernatural going on. Yeah. And he was he was a very, you know, important a guy to read for me because of just how his convictions were very deep. He was a very religious man, but at the same time, he was extremely free in entertaining wild ideas also. And he was a fun guy to read, even though he was so spiritual. He was never scolding you. He was never uh, too uptight in his uh, message and not to remain constricted in this uh, devout lifestyle yeah. type of message you know like you could be a rebellious teenager and still enjoy reading this deeply religious man so so there's a relationship or uh at least with this particular thinker between piety and devoutness towards the spiritual life towards god but then also playfulness and you're saying that there's there's it just seems like your religion produces a lot of intellect intellectual intellectualism and also like this this uh i guess you said there's always so many sects so there's no one hinduism yeah. it seems like the hinduism itself is pantheistic but hinduism and in, in its form is is there's so many different sects and so it it, it kind of spirals and and uh, lifts up and causes people gives people a lot of different paths to to manifest themselves or to engage with life through yeah and I've not been asked so many questions about Hinduism in other podcasts because people like to ask me about, you know, Napoleon and Nietzsche. But I love your questions, I think, and they are yeah. very interesting. And I think what Hinduism and I think this is what all cultures and all religions do offer to their people uh, to some degree would be archetypes, would be models of behavior. Yeah. So I told you about the playful God Krishna. But then there is this God of destruction called Lord Shiv 
you know and lord shiv is the god who destroys corruption and destroys societies when they become corrupt is so shiva shiva is another way that we, yeah okay. yeah so he's part of the trinity so you have the god the playful god krishna who maintains the universe and then you have shiv who comes at the end of the cycle and destroys everything yeah. and i think shiv's essential energy is you know the good destruction your life can get filled with clutter societies can get filled with useless laws and regulations and waste is something that accumulates and only destruction can get rid of the waste and the clutter and the useless things which just crowd in on life right so you can interpret shiv as the clearing energy like he's the cleansing fire hmm. and uh, i think what hinduism offers people is you know you can be the playful maintenance god and you can play with what is or you can or maybe you you have a critical eye or maybe you are the criticizer maybe you are disagreeable maybe you have some cleansing fire inside you but then there's a lot of clutter to be cleansed so go for it <laughs> <laughs> and the third god uh, since we're we're right since yeah, i guess right, we yeah. got to finish the loop on that so the third <laughs> god interesting is this god called brahma uh, lord brahma and brahma is the creator god so mm. shiva is the destro destroyer god and krishna is the maintenance god and then brahma is the creative god and uh, brahma has you know interesting story about him would be he has four faces and so he has one face here one face behind and two faces on the side and there is a myth about him which uh, goes like this he once created since he is the creator god he is creating everything and he created this one uh, angelic uh, like a like a angel you know uh, and she was too beautiful she was too radiant and he kept developing a face in every direction she ran to so she goes left and he develops a face to the left and so on and ultimately he ends up with five faces uh you know one above his head too oh, okay and then ashiv is completely incensed and angry at this behavior he says this is no way for a god to behave <laughs> and then he chops off one head and then he curses brahma to never be worshiped and today there are thousands of krishna temples in india and there are thousands of shiv temples in india and there is only one brahma temple in the whole country Okay. Because he was cursed to not be worshipped. There's because so many he, secrets there. Yeah, okay, because why? I don't know because maybe he gave in to his lust or you know, yeah. he his conduct was unbecoming of a god, uh, you yeah. know, you could interpret it many ways. Or yeah, or um to invert that human beings who human beings need to be very careful when they worship um creation itself and it, it kind of echoes the garden of eden story where where mankind is kind of separated from the tree of life like there's something too dangerous about the tree of life for human beings so in an inversion of that human beings when they embody that archetype of the creator are very easily yeah. led astray very easily um become uh, unwieldy um destructive corruptive um because yeah. that that potent the highest of high can't meet with the lowest of low without being corrupted in some way. Yeah, I like that interpretation because you know the Adam and Eve story is to some degree Adam being uh you know swayed by Eve and yeah. uh, you know here you have the creator god being swayed by this one his creation. Angel. Yeah. His creation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting it could hmm. be that. Yeah. Have you read um 
Uh, well, to, what's your relationship with thus Brock Zarathustra, which is Nietzsche's, uh, yeah. some would say his penultimate work or his ultimate work? Yeah, I like it. I love it. I probably have it on my desk. Uh, I have a Nietzsche desk. I have a Nietzsche stack on my desk. Yeah, yeah. So I love it. It's uh, it's not my favorite work of his. Yeah, uh, okay. I think it's loose and it's yeah, it's it's looser because it's it's bigger than his other books and its uh, message is more um, coded. Yes. You know, in other books he's very straightforward. He'll just come well, out and he'll tell you. Straightforward he, for Nietzsche is not necessarily straightforward, he, um, but I guess <laughs> straight talking is was one thing he does. But he's never, you know, when when I um, try to explain him to somebody with a preconceived notion of who Nietzsche is, Nietzsche said God is dead, or Nietzsche said this. Like Nietzsche doesn't say things. Nietzsche tests out ideas and then inverts yeah. them. Nietzsche, you, you don't read Nietzsche to see what Nietzsche thinks. You read Nietzsche to see Nietzsche thinking. Well put, beautifully put. That's exactly right. His thought is extremely active and very much happening in front of you. He's not bringing conclusions uh, to you. He is bringing his process to you. He's bringing, you know, he's having fun with it. He yeah. He's not bringing you dead thoughts. He's bringing you live puzzle solving, you know, and you see him do it. You see him think through these things. Um, I have found, I think every person, and I, I want to know who this person is for you, but every per, everyone who reads finds that one author who they just immediately uh, speak to and who speaks to them. And there is this natural affinity. Uh, and for me, that was Nietzsche. So I read him and I could instantly grasp him. I could, hmm. even though not necessarily, I did not know where his conclusion was going to be because he does like to tease you. He does like to take you left and right, up and down. But I could, I, I was instantly familiar with his style. With I, I had a doubt. I had a, uh, you know, I had something, something of a premonition of where he would go, and yeah. he did go there. So I, I'm sure you also have had a thinker or a book like that. Well, when I stumbled on Nietzsche, it was I think I was 20, and I was at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, it was either it was probably nineteen. I went to Barnes and Noble and I got the portable Nietzsche. I think Dover. I can't remember the publisher, publisher, but Walter Kaufman's um, portable Nietzsche, and you flip yeah. through it, and I loved it because there was aphorisms. Like one of the authors that really woke me up intellectually was William Blake, his Marriage of Heaven and Hell, like where he has these yeah. proverbs of hell. And I saw him take the biblical forms as literature and then play with them in his own way, William Blake. And then I'm like, oh, I yeah. didn't know you could play with the Bible. I didn't know that this this book that I grew up on was something that you could actually have a dialogue with on a formal level, like in, in a creative level. Yeah. And that kind of sent me... Uh, kind of gave me like a really, it just deepened my relationship with the written word um, or with logos um, and with the Bible, my, my heritage. And then when I found Nietzsche, it was his aphorisms and his, his thinking where he would just, you could feel him, you could just feel him breaking things or opening things like the, the, the amount of passion that you could feel yeah. through the page was just incredible. And, uh, and I took him, 
to heart and allowed some of his ideas to infect me in a way where I needed to go through and deeply, radically criticize and destroy everything that I had assumed and, you know, kind of destroy all morality, destroy all belief, and then in the wreckage kind of see what, what held and what didn't hold. And so like that, he initiated kind of a very destructive uh, phase of my life. Um, in my in my early twenties, did he spark that to you on an intellectual level, or? Yeah, um, I I last year I uh, had a tweet which uh, you know a lot of people related to, and the tweet was a uh, type of guy who becomes religious after reading Nietzsche, and I had like eleven hundred uh, you know likes and hundreds of people commenting literally me literally me, and that's interesting because you think of Nietzsche as this typical atheist philosopher if you don't actually read him. But Nietzsche, what he does is, and my logic for my relationship with Nietzsche, I'll tell you, Nietzsche shows you the importance and glamour of greatness and what is God, but but an attempt to figure out what is the greatest in a way, right? Like God is human beings trying to figure out the ultimate virtues, the ultimate positive model. Uh, You know, if God is the judge, then he has the ultimate reasoning capacity because if he is able to judge existence then he must have a deeper insight the deepest insight Hmm. and so if you fall in love with greatness if you fall in love if you if if your soul reconfigures into this upward hierarchy then you will arrive at the footstep of religion you will arrive at the doors of god and you will be in dialogue with him even if you don't know And what Nietzsche does is he absolutely is a hierarchical thinker. He forces you to think about greatness. He forces you to be that. He almost shames you for not being that. And I think in that way, he's deeply aligned with God. Hmm. Hmm. Type of guy who becomes religious after reading Nietzsche. I think that was me because I became an atheist after uh, reading evolutionary psychology. My worldview, my sort of uh, Hindu worldview was that... um, God is necessary for explaining certain things, right? Uh, But when I read evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology, and I read, I remember reading Matt Ridley's, uh, uh, I think it's called uh, The Autobiography of a Species. It's it's a book about genetics, essentially. And uh, Matt is a brilliant writer, and he fantastically explains things like love and uh, sports, and uh, you know beauty and just all of these things uh, in in the light of science and he tells you the biological origin of love and uh, how evolution shaped us completely and no uh, god not needed soul not needed spirit not needed you don't Mm. need these concepts to explain life life can be elegantly explained in uh, material terms and he's such a convincing writer that I could not resist him. I could not see how he was wrong. And uh, that kind of did sort of spark off that atheist face for me. Um, But then, you know, I think Nietzsche actually, by sort of hammering on the importance of excellence and greatness and risk-taking and the creative act, you know, Nietzsche wants you to be creative. He wants you to be bold and be experimental. And he wants you to be the voyager, you know, he, he, thus speaks Zarathustra, there is a verse about how his 
sympathy lies with the voyager with the explorer with the seafarer with the person who is willing to tinker with uh, the physical horizons the mental horizons the spiritual horizons and if you just keep thinking in that direction i just think that god is waiting for you at the end of that line huh. i don't know how much uh, i don't know if you agree with that or relate to that but that that was sort of my nietzschean uh, experience huh I want to try to articulate something that you're making me think of. So if you're talking about this explainer, this guy who explains reality, and you don't need spirit to understand the world. Um, yeah. You don't need the soul to understand. Um, but everything that he's doing is spiritual. Like the explanation is a spirit. It's a metaphysical thing. Like he, it's a, he's, he's, he's whispering to you. It's a grand theory. It's what? It's a grand theory. Yeah, it's a grand theory. But the grand theory in and of itself is is something that's laying over matter. Like this is this is go I'm going to explain life to you. I'm gonna explain love to you. Yeah. Um But when when it comes to an evolutionary psychologist or biologist explaining what you should do, like what why love? Why why not genocide? Why not rape? Yeah. You know, th th there's always those questions, why not? Or why why, why should not? I why shouldn't I kill? Isn't that what my life is all about? You know, isn't that what yeah. chiseled me into the shape that I am? Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think for me, the natural endpoint of evolutionary psychology was something like, it's just true that in human life, there is too much space for choice. You know, we just, our brains are just too powerful. They process too much information. And we have too much freedom. We have too much power to think up the pros and the cons, to uh, think uh, in the left direction and the right direction. And ultimately, evolutionary psychology won't tell you why not or why. You know, that will be a choice. And how will you make the choice? You can flip the coin, uh, which is how this protagonist in one of my favorite books, The Dice Man, uh, he rolls the dice. So before making any decision, before making a choice, he will specify six options. And then whatever comes, he will do it. And he would put everything to the test of the dice, including if he should drive the car drunk with his kids in the backseat, including if he should cheat on his wife, everything left up to the dice. Yeah. So it was a it, it's a very it's a profound novel because it's a novel about man who's truly living out the axiom of free choice who's truly actually living out uh, a, a godless existence. And then you get to see what happens to him. So yeah. it's a very interesting book. Um, you could do that. You could flip the coin, you could roll the dice. But I think most people want to make choices based on something uh, sounder. And that sounder is not something that science can tell you. You know, Julius Evola separates science from wisdom. So science is a description of what is ultimately, and wisdom is power itself. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Wisdom is clarity. Uh, and that clarity is not going to come from an objective description of the world. Um, and that's where, that's perhaps where evolutionary science uh, stops. Because well, Chesterton yeah. says that evolution's only logic is that you adapt to what is, right? But what if what is, is corrupt and uh, degenerate and not, you know, yeah. uh, what if what if what is, is repulsive, right? Are you supposed to get used to it? Are you supposed to be this 
adaptive machine which will adapt to anything no matter how ugly yeah or are you supposed to have an ideal like it's not just every all other animals have to adapt to the world and we have to adapt to the world too but also the world has to adapt to our ideals so again you're back to god what are your ideals a b c x y z y y x y a you know so you're back to god you know there's um many passages in Nietzsche where he kind of pulls down the pants on wisdom, on religion, on all these great thinkers, all the people who, who think that they, they know the truth. He's always pantsing the people who claim the truth. And yeah. one one thing that he keeps on signaling uh, for me um, is that people think that they're guided by rationality or by virtue, but it's always the aesthetic. They're always guided by some sort of aesthetic sense. The aesthetic is always guiding them. And it can yeah. feel very... If, if you read him from the postmodern point of view and, and you just run with just his critical side, if you just run with, well, everything's aesthetic, so everything is taste. That's the only guide. Um, I think that you're missing part of the picture. I think that what he's pointing to in a deeper sense is that our... Along with goodness and along with truth, there's this third leg of the stool called beauty. And the what a man finds beautiful and what attracts a man, what guides a man when, he, when we think of taste and when we think of beauty, that is a more uh, honest evaluation. That will show you a more honest take on the man. What a man finds beautiful will cut yeah. through his virtue and his goodness. So with regard, just to make it a little American, a little bit political, if you look at what yeah. this wokeness thing is, and if you look at what yeah. they find beautiful, what they adulate, um, the inversion of masculinity and femininity into males parroting women and women parenting men, uh, parroting men um, fat, um, you know, the, the ugly, the, the decrepit, the marginal, the disabled, those are lifted up. And, and all in the name of goodness. So you see that there's this virtue signal, but the, the actual physical representation of that is the opposite or it's, it's an inversion of like the, when, when you think of naturally, and maybe this is my cultural upbringing. When I think the beautiful, I have certain ideas in my head. When, when I see the beautiful, I have an immediate reaction to it. When I see the ugly, I have an immediate reaction to it. And insofar as the queerness, the postmodernity in all of its different manifestations is trying to corrupt, literally corrupt children, to see the ugly as beautiful, to see to see truth as subservient to power, to see goodness as, as uh, serving, you know, the community in, in a very weird, odd way, you can see it through their aesthetics much more plainly than through all of their dialectics and all of their, uh, you know, their, their statements, right? Yeah, aesthetics is the ultimate uh, window into the soul, right? Like, what a man finds beautiful will tell you all you need to know about him. Um, and I think the reason there is an attempt to confuse beauty with ugliness and truth with lies uh, you know, one famous Howard statistician, I'm, I'm not sure if you have heard about him. Uh, he was famous probably a year ago for having a thread about why 2 plus 2 can be 5. And it was this, uh, you know, insane attempt to try and argue his way out of basic mathematical truth. And this guy teaches at Howard. And, uh, you know, it just seems absurd. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. But then if you think about it, what's happening is... Your very 
like it's actually pretty hard to have a grip on reality right jordan peterson once said that sanity is outsourced we actually cannot figure out the moral balance of everything on our own you know is this good is this bad like these are these can become testy questions and what we do is we outsource sanity to the mob to the crowd to the end group and mm-hmm. i will look around and i'll see what my family thinks i'll look around and i'll see what my friends think and uh, sanity is actually pretty hard to have a grip on but if you are sane then you're not a uh, sheep which can be herded in whatever direction you know for all his uh, faults andrew tate made this great point which is that if someone is trying to confuse man and woman you know like it's the first category that the child learns right mother and father it's actually the basis for how you interact with the world and how you think about everything else if they are trying to attack that basic category then they are trying to completely destabilize your sanity yeah. and once you are not capable of uh, objectively and personally looking at the truth then they have you then they can tell you 2 plus 2 is 5 yeah 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 look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer they've changed so you don't have to download the new bumble now when you need meal time inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply So how how was Nietzsche the springboard to other thinkers? So you you scratch uh, Nietzsche and then what where do you find next? Where do you where do you develop personally next or I mean you scratch Nietzsche and you see Elon Musk taking over Twitter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the threat? Is that the through, through line? line? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and that's I why we have happens, X. That's why we have X. Thanks Nietzsche. <laughs> Yeah, I think you if you judge a coach by how many great players he taught, then Nietzsche has to be the greatest coach because you read Ernst Jünger, favorite writer, Nietzsche. You know, you read Lawrence of Arabia, favorite writer, Nietzsche. You know, you read uh, this guy Andre Malraux who was a French writer, diplomat, fought in World War II, uh, became a prisoner of war. uh then went went back and fought again became the first culture minister in the world and andre malraux turned france into the most visited country in the world like today the most touristed spot on planet earth is paris and uh, all the historic and heritage sites in paris were completely covered with soot and black tar due to the war and uh, malraux was the man who actually cl- cleaned it all up and made france this tourist destination and his favorite writer nietzsche you know you his wife uh, talked about how malru was haunt i'm probably saying the name wrong but uh, malru's wife talked about how he was haunted by nietzsche huh. so i think what i started noticing is that okay i see a pattern here 
you know, anyone who has tried to chase excellence and greatness has run into Nietzsche at some point and found a lot of value. Um, hmm. And even today, if you want to read, like the ultimate self-help book is Thus Fake Zarathustra, right? Like you can read Jordan Peterson, great writer. You can read these other great writers who are speaking in the modern lingo. But I think if you read Thus Fake Zarathustra and if you actually absorb it, it's more powerful than any self-help book out there. Okay, so um, just to push back against that, you have Nietzsche, and then you have uh, the philosophers of suspicion, um, which is a Paul Ricoeur yeah. phrase, which he includes Nietzsche, Freud, Marx. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know if he brings up Foucault or not, but Nietzsche also is the headwater of postmodernism, of queer theory, mm -hmm. of critical theory. Um, yeah. From your perspective, to what degree have you looked into that? To what degree does that do you see that Nietzsche being being also the uh, nuclear reactor that's driving critical theory as well? Yeah, I agree. I agree that he is, and I'll give you a live example, right? So take transgenderism, right? Take the act of trying to change your own gender, and uh, someone pointed it out to me uh, once, uh, and I was greatly annoyed because it's a good point. What could be more playful than trying to change your gender, right? What could be bolder? What well, I mean, could be more Arjuna exciting? does it too, right? Uh, when they go, Sorry. when the when the Mahabharata go into hiding, Arjuna changes gender for for a um, year season. Maybe, maybe is he changing genders? Is he like dressing up as a woman for yeah, strategic reasons or something like that? Maybe he becomes a woman. So, but you see that there's the there's a feminine playfulness within the warrior. Yeah. Which is kind of right. slightly AGP if you look at how many military personnel end up becoming transgender. There is this uh, inversion of masculinity yeah. where you, it wants to possess or become the woman at its, yeah. at its uh, apex. That is that is an interesting phenomenon um, because uh, who's the uh, you know who's the most famous transgender athlete in the world? Oh, um, Bruce Jenner. Bruce Jenner, yeah, he was an Olympian, right? So yeah. that is an interesting type of person who is uh, pretty much the, you know, dominant alpha male, but then wants to become a woman at some point. So I think, okay, so what this person told me, my friend told me that, you know, you, Josh, they said, uh, Josh, you put experimentation, bold creativity at the pedestal, right? Like your highest value is creativity. So these people are being creative with their body, you know, they are being creative with who they are at a very biological level. Why do you not admire that? So my argument to my friend and to this point is that by trying, like, it's impossible to become a man if you're a woman, right? It's just, sorry, it's impossible to become a woman if you're a man. You can go through any amount of aesthetic chopping and cutting. But ultimately, you don't have the fundamental cellular structure that a man does. You know, your body breaks food down different. It produces hormones different. So what you're doing by being a man and becoming a woman or vice versa is you're weakening yourself. Mm. You are uh, creating this okay. false line in your soul. And weakness is a very, it's a Nietzschean vice, right? Strength is a Nietzschean virtue. So I think... Creativity should be, Nietzsche's last book is called what? It's not the will to creativity, it's the will to power. So creativity is a subset to power. You know, you do creative things because that gives you attention, because that gives you power. Okay. Right? So I think there is a type of experimentation which is self-defeating. 
you know there you can be in the lab and create something great and change the world or you can blow the lab up and die you know, and so the thing about creativity and experimentation is don't blow the lab up because then you kind of miss the point. Also, um, Nietzsche's critique uh, includes a lot of critique of power. Like even though even though power is, is uh, you know, he's, he's showing that a lot of people are always seeking power. It's, you know, like Elul, Jacques Elul, where he writes about propaganda, but he also is a theologian. So he looks at the world and he sees darkness and he just sees technocracy and he just sees the other, other fallenness of humanity. But he also believes deeply in God. Nietzsche critiques, he, he said, you know, he, he puts forth that you have to be the ubermensch, you know, you have to, you have to overcome time. You have to live every moment as though if as though and as though you could live every moment for eternity and always be saying yeah. yes to it, right? Um, yeah. You see the corruption of, of his ideals. Um, maybe, maybe, or maybe it's not a corruption of his ideals because it's not just. You see the critical theory um, stuff. Taking Nietzsche's concepts, you see Foucault taking Nietzsche's concepts and applying his uh, analysis of power to sexuality, and say that sexuality was a way for people, or you know, Western intellectuals or Western society created sexuality in order to control the sexual impulse, in order to control women, in order to control the homosexual um, by saying that they're they're mad or they're they're aberrant. Um, what I'm trying to get at is that is is Nietzsche sufficient in and of himself to give you the guidelines on to creating a powerful person for yourself, but is also not just completely selfish, not completely isolated, not completely cut off and and uh, subsur- trying to build bend everybody to your own will, right? Because that's the yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like the question is, you know, uh, could an overzealous reading of Nietzsche turn you into a manipulative psycho? Yeah. And, uh, you know, perhaps um, I think what Nietzsche could give you, you know, too much of is too much of a belief in your own first instinct or your own first intuition. And then maybe you discount other people, maybe you discount others not like you, maybe you discount the interest of the larger society. Um, but I think, yeah, and you know, the argument often is that you you are a social animal. You do need uh, your ancestors. You do need descendants. You are not this ubermensch alone against the world. Uh, and Nietzsche, you know, did not have children, uh, had a very uh, fraught relationship with his own family. So he misses... Uh, a very central aspect of human life, which is social, which is embedded. Um, And I think that's right. You know, I think that's right. Nietzsche will probably not have the greatest advice when it comes to relationships. You know, he he does have some interesting thoughts. (laughs) About Uh, women. (laughs) Yeah, I think about the, more importantly, I think about the chemistry between men and women and what creates it and what kills it. Uh, He has some interesting thoughts on that. I have personally, I don't think I've become any more antisocial or any more disagreeable than uh, I was before. So, you know, Jordan Peterson's test says I'm very disagreeable, so I must be, and I think I am. And there is such a thing as too much disagreeability, for sure. You know, uh, because 
I have always been a part of these debatey friend circles and we could just sit across from each other for three hours and break down each other's arguments and do it in a spirit of it's a game. It's a game for us. But then you sit someone down and you break down their arguments and they're agreeable and they feel terrible. Yeah. They feel attacked. They're like, why? They, they shut down, you know? They don't want to engage with you anymore because you're so violent in your deconstruction of what they said. So at in a, in a situation like that, you know, you probably should tone down your disagreeability or your Nietzschean will to power. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you should have a will to connect. Sometimes you should have a will to understand or sometimes you should have a will to uh, protect right so yeah like the will to power does leave some things outside hmm. yeah the, the will to greatness like you were saying um something yeah. nietzsche brought you to god or to the gates of religion is what you said or the the nietzsche to religion pipeline so nietzsche brought you to, through a sense of seeking greatness to another place yeah. so what what what's beyond then what what where do you go where have you gone next when you think about god because there's the god of greatness yeah. but there's the god of caring um you know there's the god of creation there's the god of destruction you know there's there's uh there's many yeah. different kinds of god that you could pursue um, True. but the, if, if you want the, the highest God, the highest God would be the creator of everything. Um, yeah. so there would be a feminine aspect or something that's not purely, um, bappy or, uh, you know, pure will to power, kind of like the soft aspect. So yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, people embody different gods, people embody different archetypes and, uh, some people genuinely don't get a kick out of creating things. You know, they've just never been interested in doing it differently or doing it in a unique fashion. They like to produce what others have produced, just more copies of, right? Uh, like not everyone, like I have a Bluetooth speaker on my desk to just use one example, and I have a pen in my hand. You know, not everyone producing pens or Bluetooth speakers is trying to be innovative. You know, most of these people are trying to follow a formula. But then there are some people who want to produce path-breaking Bluetooth speakers and path-breaking pants. So I think people kind of have an inkling of what their archetype is, what the god they are meant to worship. Hmm. And uh, then they naturally find their way to that energy. You know, they find their way to that archetype. They relate to certain movie characters. You know, they relate to certain Ryan Gosling characters and not others. Yeah. And uh, hmm. what is that? That's people trying to find their way to their archetype. Okay. And yeah, your archetype? And my archetype? <laughs> I don't know my archetype exactly. I have this book called Trickster Makes the World on my desk. Yeah. And I have always enjoyed being a trickster in classroom conversations. I've enjoyed poking holes in arguments of my seniors. Um, yeah. and I like to play with language. I like to play with concepts in the service of, uh, beauty in the service of power, you know, not for the fuck of it. Yeah. I don't want to produce, I, I don't think it, it is an ugliness is not an acceptable outcome of play or innovation. I don't want to randomly throw some letters together and create some obscene, unspeakable word, some random thing which means nothing and call that art or call that creativity. I don't want to do that. 
So I think that that would be my archetype, you know, maybe like play and creativity, but in the service of beauty, in the service of uh, power. If I end up creating something ugly, if I end up losing power instead of gaining it, then I would consider my experimentation a sheer waste of time, energy, and resources. Hmm. One thing that I think Nietzsche led me to uh, after I went through the critical phase, uh, like the kind of like the philosophy with the hammer phase of life, where yeah. I broke down all morality and I, I just I didn't put my I allowed myself to believe anything, right, and then see like what would stick and what wouldn't stick, and and I ended up feeling really terrible, and I had to you know, kind of go back to what I'd been taught already. You know, I had the prodigal arc of departure and return, yeah. but you know, when, when I kind of got back through that personal experimentation, thinking about life, like, what do I want to do? Like the kind of the Nietzschean esque thing that stuck with me was, it was a sense of ambition. Like I wanted to build something. I had to build something and I had to innovate. I had to do something great and grand. I had to do something great and grand. And, And I put a lot of my ego into that. And then of course, like I had to go through different permutations of, of maturity through that, but for you, like in your life, like what's that ambition? Um, th- does ambition ring for you? And, and what is it? I mean, being a trickster is fun. Yeah. But do, do you have like a bolder, bigger, yeah. something itching you and to, yeah. to grasp yeah, or I, to I found? Wanna, yeah, I want to make films. So I have a very very simple ambition. I think if you want to express ideas and tell stories, then the most uh, intense way to do that is to make a film about it. And drama catches people in a way that a speech or a lecture does not. Uh, A story remains the most powerful way to package philosophy in. And... uh, I believe that statement to be true. And then if I do want to play at the highest level, I'll have to make films. So I've been involved with uh, some films. I have been involved with an upcoming Netflix show. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, Hin- a Hindi show, uh, you know, and it's going to come out in a few months. So I've been there. I've made short films. You know, I, I've, been, I've been poking uh, and uh, pushing in that direction. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, the goal is to make films. And I think all films celebrate something and they hmm. uh, insult something. You know, they celebrate a certain lifestyle, a certain way of being in the world. And they insult a way of being in the world sometimes too. And films have heroes and villains. So making a film well is to kind of rewire what people consider good and what people consider bad and what people consider worthy of celebration yeah you know and uh, then if you can rewire that then you can rewire the world like why do people you know why does balaji srinivasan and why does the american presidential candidate vivek uh talk about how the american tiktok app pushes youtube you being a youtuber as a career and the chinese tiktok app pushes being an astronaut as a career Right, like what you consider worth celebrating has profound consequences for your society. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I, every time I write fiction versus uh, writing nonfiction, writing fiction is a lot harder and it's a lot more fun. Hmm. So, that would be the grand ambition, and I somehow have to, you know, 
you know go there and i have to figure out my path to the world of films and mm -hmm. that's that's one of the challenges for next year when when you put yourself to writing fiction what is what presents itself to you uh, and you could speak anything from genre to to character what what calls you when when you yeah enter my world? fiction yeah sorry my fiction tends to be extremely uh narrative heavy you know very plot heavy very dependent on dialogue um i have written this book called the lost book of love would you like to see a copy yes it's not available on amazon uh, or anything yet but i'll i'll probably you know send it to you later i don't have it on my desk so yeah it's a it's a book about this man who is uh, uh addicted to professional debating which may or may not have been me and then he has this one week planned up where he has multiple debate competitions back to back to back and then he also manages to meet this one woman in a bookstore and they end up having a very interesting one week together so it's a romance novel but it's it's extremely tightly plotted mm -hmm. you know and no no description of clouds or no description it's not a it's not a literary uh work even though in some ways it is i i do like heavy plotting heavy dialogue and i like genre fiction more than i like literary fiction yeah and i'm not afraid of accepting that on a podcast i think genre fiction can be profound um but literary fiction just gives up on its duty of plotting well and having crisp dialogue so yeah when i sit down to write i think i like science fiction the most as a genre because it allows you to play with ideas more than other genres mm. um hmm. yeah what about you do you like to write fiction uh yeah uh i like to write fiction i mean i liked to write fiction now i don't write anymore i only rewrite um i have uh, seven you books say. that i have to finish somehow so until i do that yeah. i can't write anything new yeah i can't write anything new until i finish so what what's start. your genre if you have one all of them all of them no i mean your favorite one or your you know top two well you start with mythology mythology is where all the seed is but you have to extend the mythology and fairy tales are where all the fun is so you you have to have mm -hmm. the fairy tales can't just be fun they have to be talking about mythology so you take mythology or the archetypes then you put them in a fairy tale world but fairy tales always end up having a moral which means that somebody's yeah. reading the fairy tale or it, it's talking about adult life it's it's talking about real life and so there's literary fiction or genre fictions you could say that extend the fairy tale into different time zones like you can have a romance or you can have science fiction or you can have something contemporary yeah. that takes the fairy yeah. tale and then gives it more accoutrements that are either fantastical science fictional or you know more literary yeah. um, or realistic you know but then yeah. when you have all that then they all have to work together and so you need somebody commenting on that which would be the metafiction and then the metafiction is the playing of interpretation between all the different forms and stuff so if you can get yeah. them all working together then you have what I consider the postmodern, what other people would consider the metamodern um, project, yeah. which is what I'm trying to finish, but it's unfinishable. Yeah. 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 Well, you've taken upon yourself the impossible task of trying to have every single genre ever invented or drummed up by man inside there, but. Well, no, it, it's, it's totally, it's perfectly doable. It's perfectly doable if you uh, understand what is going on, which would be character. So. Yeah. 
you know, you have, you have your archetypes. So you're always dealing with archetypes. You're always dealing with goddesses and gods. And that's yeah. why I am what I call gender positive. I don't think that we can destroy this thing called gender. I think that we can articulate it culturally either tighter or looser but we're always when you think of a woman or when you start to tell a story about a she that she will automatically have different parameters than if you started a story with a he and so um when any writer talks about a she or talks about a he, they're talking in terms of gender. They're usually talking about themselves or, you know, their, their mother or father, or like how they grew yeah. up and how they interacted with sex, so-called. Um, but then th that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about, because gender is such a hot topic. Like when you write of a she or when you interact with yeah. a she, when you think of a she, like what is a woman in that context? What are the parameters, the qualities that, that, a, that a female character brings yeah. to the story? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think it, it kind of comes down to what sort of women. So if I'm writing a book and I'll have to create a female character who I'll have to interact with, you know, I'll have to think about her. I'll have to write about her. She has to be, in some sense, coherent. She cannot have completely different characteristics chapter to chapter. So I'll, I'll basically have to like her, right? Uh, mm. Unless she's my grand villain or something. Yeah. But I think my female characters have tended to be um, the flowy types, you know? The uh, maybe the flowy. So have you seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Yeah. Yeah. So can you conjure up the female character from that movie, but yeah, perhaps Kate, without Kate Winslet? The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But without the bipolarity, the extreme bipolarity, like just, I, I haven't written about career girls, you know, I've not written about, uh, you know, women uh, who want to be president. Um, I've, I've not written that much fiction. Maybe I will someday, but I, I, I my book, actually the lost book of love, what happens in that uh, novella is uh, these two people meet in a bookstore and they want to buy the same copy, but there's only one copy. And it's this old book, old weird book called The Lost Book of Love. Yeah. And the book is a polemic about the masculine and the feminine energies. And uh, what happens is they have a one week long date, essentially, and they read this book out to each other. And uh, as they're reading out this polemic, they're also embodying certain energies in the actual life that they yeah. are, you know, living out. So, yeah, I think I, I like Camille Paglia's uh, masculine feminine story. You know, her story is something like the masculine wants, like it, you should probably think of the, like the penis as a symbol of the masculine because it is projectile. It kind of moves forward and uh, the masculine energy wants to conquer and it wants to move directionally in one way, you know, it does need this direction. And the feminine energy is more laid back and it's more comfortable circular. with ambiguity. Huh? Comfortable with ambiguity, circular, I was gonna say. Circular, exactly. Instead of, uh, you know, moving forward in a, like a projectile, uh, circular, um, because really? the female cycle is circular, you know, um, and the male experience of the world is very different than the female experience of the world, right? The male experience of the world is I can make of my life whatever I want. And the female experience of the world is that, uh, that they can make of their life what they want. However, they are subject to the forces like the moon. And they're subject to, because, you know, there is a connection between the moon and the female menstrual cycle. Yeah. 
maybe that's a myth. Maybe there's a connection, but women are not free to break out of certain things, right? They're not free to break out of their uh, cycles. And so then they're more comfortable with ambiguity, with letting go of control. And it's a spectrum. You can have feminine men, of course, and you can have masculine women. Um, but those two poles are going to exist whether you accept them or not. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have any dating advice? Do, do you have any threads on dating? I don't have any threads of dating. Maybe I should. But, <laughs> uh, because I was, I was reading a lot of letters by Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm going to have a couple of threads on Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer had a younger brother. Uh, and Oppenheimer gave his younger brother dating advice. So, hmm. you know, some interesting stuff that I don't have any dating advice. I think there are... Uh, you know, people out there who's who are giving pretty good dating advice more explicitly, and I don't want that to be my brand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah but it's it's hard to give very straightforward dating advice because you have to think about who you are as a man or who you are as a woman, right? If you're a woman, and it it kind of does go down to your fundamental nature, you know, and uh, you know. Hmm. It's one of those things that uh, you get associated by if you ever read into. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> do you do you think you'll uh, so you, you want to make films, but do you think the writing that you do and your threads are great? Your threads are just they're very um, they just add to my experience on the internet because you're doing a lot of research, you're finding something that's interesting to you, and then you're kind of giving life to it. You're bringing up these thinkers. And so you're exploring all these different thinkers. I guess one thing I could ask is, do you, do you, do you see yourself making a book or making something uh, bigger on that? Or the other way to ask it, what do you think you're mapping out? Like, what is the terrain that you're mapping out? And how does that inform or reflect back on to the current situation? And the current situation in India is probably at least a little different than the current situation in the United oh. States. So, you know, the current situation is pretty ambiguous, but yeah. Yeah. Um, the current situation of the world and what I'm doing, um, it's kind of hard to see the exact relationship. I, I mean, I am going to compile my work. Uh, I am going to come out with a couple of books, uh, hmm. pretty soon. So there's that. I think there is, in some sense, going to be a correction in... You, did you see that chart about how all the uh, women in 12th grade are liberal and all the men in 12th grade are conservative? Mm-hmm. And how much can you push that trend with, you know, before the push comes to shove? Because that is actually a pretty significant trend. And it's historically unique because the lines were sort of wriggling together and now they've just sort of gone in two opposite directions. So I think the current situation is going to see a correction in the direction of like masculine virtues and masculine ethics and masculine priorities. Um, What that could look like. So we do have biological proof that we have gone, uh, we have over feminized society, right? And that biological proof is, 25-year-olds today having lower testosterone than 60-year-olds in 1970s. So you cannot keep going in one direction without the pendulum swinging the other way. Hmm. I'm not sure when that way is going to be. Um, But in a way, you can see this in the sort of leaders which are now becoming acceptable. You know, um, if to care about others is a feminine virtue and it's a great one, 
and it's the virtue on the basis of which civilization rests. You know, no civilization if the mother does not care about the child, right? Um, but it can become pathological. It can go too far. You can care too much about what other people think, how they are feeling. You can start censoring what you think based on that fear. So if you look at someone like Trump, right? Trump doesn't care at all, right? He will run his mouth off and he will think out loud and he will sometimes say absurd things. And I think that's very masculine in a way, you know, to not care about uh, the social blowback to you running your mouth. Is that not... similar with your uh, president? Is it Modi? Is that yeah. the guy in charge? Yeah. Is he yeah, I think Modi is more careful, actually, than Trump. I don't think he is that interested in being playful with his uh, language or speeches. Modi is a very intense guy. You know, and the brand that he wants to create, the impression he wants to leave you with is uh, duty. He is a very dutiful uh, guy. He wants to sacrifice his life to the country. And in India, that's the language you have to use if you want power. You know, you can't just come, you know, swinging in with this, you know, Trumpian, you know, trolley. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Very different country. People expect you to have a certain... Uh, selflessness, you know, if you want power. But in I think in the US, people are okay with someone like Trump who, like, I, I don't think someone would use selflessness as an adjective to describe Trump, right? No. Um, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, just a kind of a very powerful critique of Obama. I think it's, I think we're going to see a really quick change in people's attitude towards Obama. There was just a book that was released in 2017, but an article that came out um, interviewing the biographer of Obama and this biographer has gone through and kind of destroyed the myth of Obama as this, you know, um, paragon of American uh, universalist yeah. liberalism and a paragon of, of race consciousness. You know, you basically have this inverted story of just a power hungry, uh, kind of almost amoral yeah. person. And yet yeah. that's what a pol politician is. So something kind of refreshing about Trump is that he's just the form of the politician laid bare. Yeah. He's just a purely narcissistic you know, maybe yeah. even kind of psychopathic, you know, like, but loosened from that bureaucratic, um, you know, the virtue signaling that, that is so paper thin anyways. And then you have the inversion. Somehow we went from Trump to Biden. He was a complete puppet, but is, you know, the, like you have this dark Brandon kind of aesthetic going on where you see this guy, <laughs> this inept guy with red eyes. It's like this demon being possessed and possessing like a broken down car to get its way. I don't know. It's just kind of weird on an archetypal level. Yeah. What's what's going on. But what you're pointing to weird. is that there's a going to be yeah. some sort of resurgence of the masculine. Um, I was just listening to a podcast with Gio and, uh, I can't yeah. pronounce his last name, but he was talking about how there was going to be a pendulum swing to the right, but it didn't happen. Um, and so you have this, like what's happening with Bud Light, what's happening with kind of the surgence of people in people want to go right. They want to make a conservative correction, but something within power, something within the halls of bureaucracy within media is not letting that happen naturally. And so it's making it even more unstable. It's making the country even more kind of lopsided. And we'll see how that resolves. Yeah. But if you see the rhetoric around anything that's a hair 
right of Mao being fascist. Right. In in that's the the official narrative. Anything right wing is fascist. That's not true. It's not a good depiction of what it means to be masculine, what it means to be conservative, yeah. so-called. And I think that the work that you're doing and other dissident thinkers are doing is mapping out what it means to be, ma- what what these thinkers are actually thinking, what these uh, heroic figures are actually doing. And, and that's not just, yeah. it's not just power for the sake of power. It's not Hitler and Mussolini. You have tons, Hitler and Mussolini are actually weak versions of the great man. If If you contact these thinkers and like your threads on Napoleon, your thread, you, it seems like you're kind of documenting the hero or you're bringing up the hero. Does that ring true for you? And if so, what are you seeing when, when you uh, describe those virtues? Yeah, I think what happened in my posting uh, journey was that I started off not necessarily having a theme. You know, I was uh, writing about old books, but then I had old books across a broad spectrum. I was sometimes talking about, uh, I I did a thread on this book called Systematics, and Systematics was about how complex systems die and why countries get too uh, caught in their own bureaucratic mesh and then they become less efficient, then they get broken and then they lose wars and so on. So that thread did not pop off and then I, I kept writing, kept doing different books, different figures, and certain things started finding a resonance with people, you know, and you must have seen this trend on Twitter where people were talking about maxing, you know, you need to be protein maxing, you need to be having uh, 20x for breakfast. And uh, I started using some tweets and I started saying maxing in my tweets. Mm-hmm. And then people in my real life, my friends, they would come to me and they would start using that phrase with me. You know, like they would they would start using something I tweeted about in actual conversation. So that was pro- that was sort of a signal that these people were interested in reading about a certain type of, uh, you know, idea from me. And I, I just kept my ears and eyes open to what people were resonating with. Yeah. And what people are resonating with uh, is beauty and strength and greatness. Okay. And uh, these are, and, you know, and even the opposites, you know, corruption of beauty, which would be ugliness and uh, weakness and how to not be distracted and weak. And one of my threats on Aldous Huxley was about how fuck pleasure, you know, don't chase pleasure, ignore it, be indifferent to pleasure because his essay from 1920 called On Pleasures talks about how pleasures were supposed to be available as a reward for hard work. You know, music was supposed to be accessible at the end of a hard day's manual labor while you were sitting around a campfire with your friends. And music was not something which you were supposed to just plug into your ears all the time. You know, uh, Steven Pinker has called music auditory cheesecakes. You know, and you're not supposed to have auditory cheesecakes in your ears all the time. So modernity is offering you just so many pleasures without you having earned them. And my thread was about how maybe you should dissociate with your drive to pleasure. Um, hmm. So, yeah, what ended up happening was people, I, I, I started looking at what people were liking and not liking. And uh, everything I talk about is a part of my interest. So, and then I just uh, picked certain directions and, you know, here we are. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's a good question. Um, And the, uh, I guess the creator life or the content creator life, um, which is quickened 
now compared to older forms of creating media. So you're creating media in a media-rich environment, and you need to look for signals. So you, there's this concept of audience capture, where you only create yeah. things that your audience wants. And right. the bigger you are, the more hollow you can be, the more uh, just a pure mirror or a fac- yeah. facsimile. Yeah. of of something original uh, something fresh so keeping your eyes to the or your ears to the ground or your eyes open to the field of what is coming back to you so you you just kind of throwing things back and then you get you get feedback you need feedback you need positive feedback you need that feedback loop yeah. to 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 build yourself and stuff but as every step you make up that hierarchy of attention i say is always there's always the yeah. temptation to fall or to falter, or to get locked in, or to become just a reflection of what you are, and to stop striving, in a way. Um, I yeah, I I agree with you completely, and I like how you said that you you can get captured by your audience, um, because I have tweeted like fourteen thousand times now, and so that's a fair amount of data, right? Like I I kind of know how people are going to react if I phrase my tweets a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like then <clears throat> I absolutely have a formula, right? And uh, the formula is not very easy to apply. It's a very demanding formula. But now I've developed it. But the thing is, the spirit which created the formula was bolder. And I need to be out there. I need to keep experimenting. And I cannot rest on my formula, even though it works. And it works beautifully. But it is only going to work for so long because ultimately the formula becomes a cliche. Yeah. Right? And uh, I have to associate with the spirit which created the formula not the formula i have to be the energy which uh, experimented and chanced upon something interesting instead yeah. of uh, you know like living on you know you can rest on your laurels right yeah. uh, you can rest on the one victory or the one formula which you have cracked yeah. and i i think that will that is a road to becoming stale in the long term mm-hmm. it's good yeah. to have fear the uh, fear of mediocrity that's a, that's a Nietzschean yeah. trait that'll keep you on your toes, right? Great, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, what's coming up? What's coming up in the future? Then, do you have? I guess you do. You want to plug any of the films that you're doing? Or are those still kind of? Yeah, I mean, I think the films are a long way off. Uh, I, I I do have this book I want to publish, perhaps in uh, thirty days, thirty five days. You know, if uh, if it all goes well. Yeah. Uh, so that should be interesting. What's People it should called? Follow me. Your book. Uh, I'll, I'll um, tell you. I am not okay for a reveal yet because I'm I'm not sure if I want to do this one. It's like you have seven books, right? And yeah. you probably don't know which one you want to start with. <sighs> That's a big story, <laughs> but yeah, all at once. But yeah, there's an order. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I have a couple of books I'm kind of not sure about, you know, which one goes in September, which one goes in October. Oh, OK. Yeah. So, yeah. But okay. yeah, it will be re- it will be related to what we discussed. Nietzsche will feature in that. Uh, it will be about human identity, human purpose. And yeah, hopefully it'll be interesting so people can find me on Twitter. Or and how they guy. find you on Twitter. It's just your name, Josh Dolani. Yeah. Yeah, they can find me by my name, Josh Dulani. They can yeah. find me by my handle, which would be Old Books Guy. Hmm. Um, hmm. That was some new books too. Your Old Books Guy, and you, you produce new books too. So you're and I'm pretty. I'm gonna produce some new books. Awesome, excellent. Universe demands uh, balance. 
<laughs> it does, and constant content. Speaking of which, thank yeah. you very much for giving me some of your content and joining me. It was great to wrap uh, with you and uh, just kind of vibe off of your energy and, and uh, your exploratory curiosity. Thanks, Benjamin. I appreciate it. I I enjoyed the conversation, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, glad we did this. Thank yeah. you for your time. Do you love doing podcasts or do you fear doing podcasts? I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, I I honestly like speaking more than I like writing, you know, oh, really? but it just so happened that I developed an audience on Twitter and not YouTube. You just got to run it's with a, it. Yeah. It's a cruel joke, but yeah. no, no, no. I appreciate all my followers. I love you guys. Yeah. <laughs> is there is there something uh, that you do that's not related to the life of the mind that you really enjoy, like something out there in that world? Um, Something not related to the life of the mind. I think I travel a fair bit. Because my work is remote, and I like to go visit old temples. Hmm. And I visited this old temple. It's a thousand-year-old temple I visited re recently called the Sun Temple. So it's a temple dedicated to the sun god. You know, I told you Hinduism has a lot of gods, and mm -hmm. sun god is uh, one of them. He used to be the main god, and then he fell. So you know, even gods could could fall, uh, mm. interestingly enough. And... I visited this temple, which has been broken 25 times and rebuilt 26 times because it kept being, uh, you know, stolen from. It kept being invaded because you had literal gold towers uh, and gold pillars. And so there were kings from the other kingdoms coming over and ransacking it. And then, the you know, the king would rebuild it and it, would, it just kept happening. Huh. So I like going to these temples, you know, they are just so grand and interesting yeah. and yeah i like old architecture and i try to expose myself to it is uh, there as much, yeah. in going to all these different temples so when i go to europe one of my favorite things to do is just to go to the cathedrals and just yeah. to kind of sit in them and absorb kind of the feeling of worship in there do you feel like there's different uh, uh like like a different flavor or different uh resonance in these different temples to these different gods like of worship undeniably so yeah different gods do they have different resonances i think they would i think they do um i like this i liked the sun temple in particular because i think there is something inside me which resonates with mm. the energy of the sun you know there are two bloodlines in india actually and it's a mythic thing of course there are more than two bloodlines uh but the idea is that half the country traces its lineage back to Surya Vanshis, which means descendants of the sun, and the other half traces its lineage to the, I think, Yadu Vanshis, which is the descendants of the moon. Hmm. So I think, you know, we are descendants of certain energies, and so certain saints, certain gods yeah. will vibe with us more. Hmm. Hmm. That does speak to your kind of enlightenment bravado that you express. You're a child of the light, child of the sun. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the sun energy is uh, very different than the moon energy, you know. And uh, yeah, I think India has uh, a lot of both, but probably more moon energy. And now I can feel that changing, hmm. you know, in our culture, in our society. Like things are becoming brighter and things are becoming hotter, you know, and... Mm -hmm. uh, just activity is catching on like it, it's a more active country than it was 10 years ago yeah yeah no i mean uh, it's going to be really fascinating to see the trajectory of india 
the uh, Americans, well, we're stupid, but we think about Russia and then we think about China, but India is kind of between yeah. Russia and China and kind of doing its own thing. It looks like it's some pretty amazing times are ahead for your country. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it's a very big country and it's a lot of uh, diversity. So, you know, diversity can be good if it's real, right? Uh, yeah. So you can just go from one corner to the other and have well, extremely different experiences. Yeah, diversity yeah. with harmony. If, as long as there's harmony and diversity, then you have something very, yeah. very powerful, very rich. I think we, yeah, like like any other country, we do have our problems with harmony because uh, too many different languages, too many different interests. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, any, any politician here has to contend with that, mm -hmm. you know, because you have your division in the US, but at least you speak the same language. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, you know, yeah, for the most part. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, but you know, there's a yeah, like uh, India. India can be its own uh, topic for its own podcast. But yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. If you if you ever visit, you know, I'd love to get coffee with you and show you around. Oh yeah, for sure. Let, let's end the recording. We can have a little after party. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks.